People are attracted. Um, they want to hear the crazy story of a professor swimming the whole river. In our last episode, we explored the concept of legal personhood for rivers. But you can define rivers in other ways by, say, like what's in the rivers. Each river tells you something about the society living along that river. And with this season being all about rivers, we're going to look at how the character of a river is defined by what happens in its watershed, specifically with regards to plastic waste. So how do plastics connect with the guy who swam the whole river? Well, I spoke with a pair of research professors who have made it their goal to educate the public, which isn't a common thing among scientists, and even less so the way that they did it. But their research looks at just how much microplastic is actually in our waterways. Microplastics are the tiny particles of plastic that come from larger products. Yeah, okay. And they told me about some really interesting and exciting things about plastics also that I had no idea about. Plastic is a wonderful material. It's even environmental. Huh. But I still don't know how this relates to the professor who swam the whole river. Okay. Well, today you're going to learn about him and his research partner and the epic swim that set a new world record. We hope he didn't swallow too much water while he was swimming in the Tennessee River. This season, we're focused on America's rivers and what lies beneath their surface. Today's episode, Swimming for the River. On Middle of Everywhere, telling big stories from the small places we call home. I'm Ariel Avery. And I'm Austin Carter. My name is Andreas Fahrt, F-A-T-H. I'm a um, chemist, and now I'm professor for chemistry. I'm focused on microplastic and water streams in fish bodies and aquatic life. I am um, named as an activist, too, here in Germany. Andreas's activism takes on a different form than you might expect when you hear that word. In my first life, let's say, I was a almost professional swimmer. I made some German records, German championships, and master swimmings. And there's a story behind why he chose to use his athleticism to elevate his science. There's a frustrating story behind that, because when you change your work from industry to university... Andreas joined the faculty at Fertwangen University in 2011. In industry, I was very successful. When seeking funding for his research. And I got 100% of success, and in university I had 0% of success. So I combined my two passions, water chemistry with swimming. And then I one day had the idea to swim the Rhine River. I think I can reach more people with this combination instead of writing a research paper. It's a pretty great publicity stunt. So now you know about the professor swimmer who is getting people's attention. And it turns out uh, that he's a bit of a celebrity in Germany anyway. But there was another person, another scientist, who completed this visionary duo for our story, who was just as driven as Andreas to get the message out. My name is Martin Knoll, and I'm a professor of geology and hydrology here at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. My research mainly involves water quality for both groundwater and surface water. Martin was really interested because he shares in Andreas's passion for swimming. I do. I was a swimmer in high school. And though his research passion is water quality, he's a little new to the microplastics problem that Andreas is focused on. I really 
didn't know much at all about microplastics until I met Andreas Fath. So now we've met Martin and Andreas, and we know that their passions sort of align, and we know what they've done together, but how did they get started? I happened to be on sabbatical in Germany for a semester, and near the end of my stay, I was convalescing in an apartment because I had just done this 100-mile hike in five days, and I developed a pretty wicked stress fracture, so I was laid up. So I was reading the newspaper, and I read about this crazy swimming professor who had uh, just several months before uh, finished this swim of the Rhine River. He swam the entire length of it from Lake Toma, the source of the Rhine up in the Swiss Alps, all the way down to the North Sea. And he completed it in a record-setting 28 days. But what really impressed me most was that he conducted this very extensive water quality research program as he swam along on the river with this whole entourage of scientists and graduate students and so forth. There was also within that newspaper article a little biographical sketch of Andreas. And of course he was a swimmer. I had been a swimmer in high school, so that was interesting. He had grown up in the town of Spaya, which is on the western bank of the Rhine River. I had grown up just across the river on the eastern side in a little town called Nussloch. So that was interesting. He had studied at the University of Heidelberg in Germany. I had spent some time studying there as well. He has three sons. I have three sons. When I read that, I thought, my goodness, you know, this is an incredible coincidence. I've got to reach out to this guy. So I wrote him an email. He wrote to me at the end of 2014. It was uh, after Christmas. He wrote back the next day and said, can I come down and visit you? I'll be down there in two hours. And at the end of the day, uh, end of our discussion, he came up with the idea, hey, why don't we do the same project, uh, the same swimming project at the Tennessee River? It's about the same size and length as the Rhine River. That's amazing that they came together and rallied around this idea of recreating Andreas's project here in the United States. It was serendipity. So what was the next step for Andreas and Martin once they decided that they wanted to swim the Tennessee River and study how polluted it was? So that was almost a two-year process to get the whole, what we call, tennis swim lined up. When you learn about the logistics of getting through a single day, let alone an entire month, you gain a huge appreciation for what this meant. Well, of course, Andreas was swimming every day, and we were camping along the river as we went downstream. So Andreas swam about 20 miles a day on average. We had a pontoon boat in the water, a kayak in the water every day going alongside Andreas. So that had to be stocked with scientists, graduate students, uh, food. And Andreas's whole family. All the sampling supplies. We had to understand what samples were going to be taken where, what was the dinner going to be like that night, who was going to cook it, who was going to do the grocery shopping who was paying for the campground fees, what campground it was going to be. So there are a lot of moving parts uh, to this little expedition. What we wanted to create was an environment where Andreas didn't have to worry about those logistics. He was only able to swim, eat, and sleep. I was very curious about how many calories a person like Andreas burns when swimming 20 miles a day. The Tennessee Aquarium, some of their scientists there try to calculate his calorie burn, and they estimated between 10 and 12,000 calories a day is what he burned. Wow, five or six times the average 2,000 calorie diet for uh, Andreas during that swim. That's huge. Yeah, how many stacks of pancakes do you think that is? <laughs> Probably a few. Eating became really, <laughs> along with the water quality, now it's part of the central focus of the, of the trip. These open water swimmers, they have to eat 
pretty much every 30 to 45 minutes. So we always had to make sure there was somebody there to hand him a banana every time he stopped swimming because he could not get out of the water onto the boat. That would take too much time. Or sometimes we'd fly a drone out to where he was in the water that had potato chips or a banana or something suspended off the bottom of the drone. That is crazy. I can only imagine what that looks like. We pioneered this technique. One of my students did. He was able to connect uh, potato chips on a very long string off the bottom of a drone and fly it out to Andreas, and he, he became quite good at that. This student, Clark Lupton, also took a lot of footage of the swim with the drone and generously provided some of that footage for us, which you can see on our social media. Every day, Andreas had to get firm ground under his feet at least once a day, usually at lunchtime. And he loved it if there was a marina around that had a restaurant. I went in with a whole wetsuit in the bar. I always ask my people, is, is there a marina and has, is there a bar close to the marina? Because if you eat only bananas, it's, it's, it's okay for some time. But if you eat a real American burger... He, he really means a, yeah, a glam burger. He, he likes what they call in Germany Edelburger, a really royal burger that's got bacon and, and every, as much as what you can put on it. You know, that's what he loved. Most of the rest of us wouldn't be able to swim you know, 50 yards after eating something like that. But for him, that was perfect. He was a big star at the marinas, too. People were following the tracker or would see him sitting there in his wetsuit, eating his giant lunch. It was wet and everything, and I'm sitting there, and then people came to me, oh, here's the swimmer, and sitting with me and talking with me and taking a picture. The people they encountered were also incredibly helpful. And you know, I get Southern hospitality. I grew up in Tennessee, but I had never seen it to this extent. People would come out in their boats and on their jet skis and wish us well. They brought us food. They brought us water. They, they gave our kids rides on the back of their jet skis. They, they took them fishing. They were just incredibly giving and, and friendly. This incredible amount of support really helped keep Andreas's focus on his swim. So keeping him moving and keeping him healthy and happy, that was important. The wetsuit was an important part of that. And you might think it's crazy to wear a black wetsuit in July and August on the Tennessee River because it is hot. And we did, in fact, have to very often dump ice cubes down the front and the back of the wetsuit just to cool them off. But the wetsuit provides a little bit of buoyancy, and that makes the swimmer more efficient. The other thing about the wetsuit, it was was a psychological crutch for Andreas a little bit. He was a little freaked out by what might be in the Tennessee River. The Tennessee River is one of the most biodiverse rivers of North America. There are big snapping turtles. There are these prehistoric fish called gar and paddlefish that are really strange. And if you've never seen some of these creatures, you should definitely Google them. There might be alligators down in northern Alabama. He didn't tell me any of that. (laughs) He wouldn't. Of course he wouldn't tell you that. I would not blame him for a second for wearing the wetsuit. If you've ever seen an alligator gar, it's a pretty gnarly fish. When we come back, we'll hear why Andreas also wore a piece of plastic on his body during the swim and what their water samples revealed. Support for Middle of Everywhere comes from Kentucky Humanities. An affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Kentucky Humanities is dedicated to bringing the humanities to classrooms and communities across the state, promoting literacy and civil discourse, building pride in the Commonwealth, and telling all of Kentucky's stories. Learn more at kyhumanities.org. So we left off after learning all about the logistics of the tennis swim. 
But we haven't yet talked about Andreas and Martin's research, which kind of demonstrated to people what microplastics are capable of doing to fish and aquatic animals. And us humans. Here's Andreas talking to an audience at the beginning of the swim. And I'm wearing a piece of plastic with a polystyrene membrane. This is used as every chemical which is in the water could adhere to this membrane. What? (laughs) Just hang on. So you can take plastic bottles, you can crush them to small particles, make microplastic out of them in a controlled way. And then with the chemical treatment, you can use these particles as an adsorber for pollutants. So you can use plastic litter as a filter material. Huh, so how does that really work? Well, let's get a little explanation about microplastics. So microplastics are what we call emerging contaminants. Which means they are contaminants that are just beginning to be studied by people like Andreas and Martin. And the microplastics end up in our water supply as a result of being broken down in the rivers. I could hear the Rhine uh, working like a mill. It breaks down plastic bottles from big parts to smaller parts, and you could hear this mill. It's very noisy. Wow. The Rhine is capable of breaking rocks in the Alps to very thin sand at the end at the beaches in the North Sea. To be classified as a microplastic, it needs to be smaller than five millimeters across. That's like the size of a lentil. And they end up being more harmful when ingested than you might initially think. Uh, Andreas likes to call these things, uh, these microplastic particles, Trojan horses, because they get in your body and they unleash uh, much more than meets the eye. The microplastics act like little tiny magnets onto which other contaminants can adhere. So if you just visualize this teeny tiny microplastic fragment in, say, a river, a river where there may be toxins, man-made chemicals, pharmaceuticals, pesticides, heavy metals, those kind of things. Those things can glom onto the surfaces of microplastic particles. And so every little microplastic particle can potentially be this little time bomb. Wow, so these tiny microplastics can kind of concentrate all of the other chemicals and pollution that shows up in rivers. That's kind of amazing. Right, and scary. But let's actually shift our thinking from how harmful these microplastics are to how we might actually benefit from them. Hmm, In what way can they be beneficial? Well, remember that little piece of plastic Andreas said he was wearing around his ankle while he was swimming? Yeah. That patch was meant to demonstrate both the scary way plastic can act like a Trojan horse entering our bodies, but it was also meant to demonstrate the way plastic can be used to help clean up the water by using this property of plastic to filter out these things. And the source is for free because it's litter. People throw litter away because they think it's not worth to, to, to use this. But it's, it's the opposite. You can use plastic. Reusing the plastic to make something more valuable to us. Upcycling. Upcycling, yeah, that's the word. We're not saying plastic is evil. Plastic is a wonderful material. It's even environmental. As long as you keep it in the loop of use, as long as you don't discard it and throw it out into the environment. And Andreas is working with various companies to engineer plastic filtration systems now. He's a very good engineer. It's a great idea. It makes perfect sense. Okay, so now we know about this amazing property that plastics have where they kind of attract all of the other contaminants and pollutants in the river, and that can help us filter out wastewater. But I'm really curious what Martin and Andreas found in terms of the samples from the Tennessee River. 
That was, after all, why they were doing this whole thing. Right. Well, they ended up finding that the Tennessee River's plastic content was way different from the Rhine. Yes, that was a shocking result. Yeah, the unexpected was that it's 18,000 microplastic particles in 1,000 liter of water. In the Rhine, we had only 200. That's 90 times the amount that was in the Rhine. And even more shocking is that there are significantly fewer people living along the Tennessee than along the Rhine. It's only 4.8 million people, which brings their wastewater into the Tennessee River. And the Rhine was 48 million people. Ten times more people. So with ten times more people along the Rhine, you'd expect a lot more in the way of contaminants compared to the Tennessee River. And we did find that in terms of pharmaceuticals and pesticides and a few other things. But when it came to microplastics, it was the exact opposite. When Andreo saw that number, they redid the analyses a couple times in a couple different ways and kept coming up with the same numbers. So we are looking for the, an explanation for that. Why this big difference? There are some noticeable differences in terms of plastic in the watershed in the Rhine versus the Tennessee that I think just have to be part of the answer. Each river tells you something about the society living along that river. The character of a river is given to it by everything that goes on in the watershed. And so people's lives. The culture about how people live, what they eat, what they use, about their hospitals, about their wastewater treatment. They're a huge story you can tell looking into the inside. It's crazy for the Tennessee River to be so much more polluted than a major European river where so many people are, are living on its shores. But it does say a little bit about how easy or how difficult it is to recycle plastics in an area like ours. If you look at the Rhine and where it flows through, it goes through four countries, Switzerland, Germany, France, and the Netherlands on its way to the North Sea. In those countries, there is a very rigorous recycling program. So plastic gets recycled to a much greater level than it does along the four states that border the Tennessee River. There's also a really different culture of littering in both locations. I mean, just driving anywhere in the Rhine River watershed and you just don't see much roadside litter. However, if you drive anywhere in the Tennessee River watershed, you see a lot of roadside litter. So I strongly believe that this difference in, in attitude about littering is a big component of the microplastic problem. So legislation that promotes recycling programs or even embracing this upcycling model that Andreas has could still make a huge difference. We know that that can be done because we see it in the Rhine River. But people have to buy into this in their daily life as well. Personal habits, the culture of littering, that may be a more difficult thing to get at. Jack Johnson told us how to do it with the three R's. Reduce, reuse, recycle. We got three R's. I was really curious about how Andreas and Martin described their experience living on the river for 34 days. That must have made them feel as if they really knew this river's character through and through. Certainly the Tennessee River today is not the river it was 150 years ago. There are nine dams that really create a stair step 
system of lakes. These lakes are obviously pretty still. And that's not great if you're an open water swimmer because you want current. There are 29 total dams in the entirety of the Tennessee River system. There are only a few places where when you're on a boat and you're looking around you, do you get the feeling that, hey, I'm on a river? And that's the Tennessee River Gorge and certain places out in West Tennessee, around Savannah, Tennessee, before you get to Kentucky Lake. And before this trip, Martin had never seen the Tennessee River Gorge, even though when he was a teenager, he was working on the coal docks just upstream. Taking coal away, empty barges coming in, it it sort of had this industrial flavor to me at that time. And that's really the only way I, I really knew it. But the Tennessee River Gorge is this incredible river landscape where industry is the last thing that comes to mind. The river has cut this narrow, beautiful gorge deep into the sandstone and the limestone of the area there. And so you're in this narrow slot where the river is winding through, meandering through, and you look up and you see up the steep green wooded slopes, you see these beautiful cliffs that crenulate the top of the mountain there. And it's just a spectacular area. And I was totally oblivious to that when I worked on those coal loading docks. I really loved his description of the Tennessee River and the areas where it still resembles a river. It makes me think even more about how we have affected not just the quality of the water in our rivers, but we've really shaped their whole being. Yeah, a whole industry has been built around shipping on these rivers and controlling how and where and when they flow. Exactly. And it's also affected by what those people vote for and the politics of the region. Martin was reflecting on all the kindness and support they received, and something struck him about that. Nobody wants polluted water. It doesn't matter what your politics are. The swim ended in Paducah, Kentucky, where the Tennessee River meets the Ohio. We were all, as they say in Germany, fix and fatig. We were cooked, we were toast, we were done, and 34 days on the river. And I could finish it before my uh, wedding anniversary. So Andreas and his wife got to enjoy their wedding anniversary in Paducah. And I'm Duke of Paducah. No privileges are combined with that. So I still have to wash the dishes here in my household. (laughs) (laughs) After he did the Rhine swim, he promised his wife he would never swim another river because, you know, it's an undertaking. It's a huge undertaking and it disrupts family life. Then he comes up with the tennis swim, and then he makes another proclamation. This is the last river. This is it, for real. And now he's swimming the Danube, which is almost three times the length of the Tennessee River. His Danube trip is set to debut in April of 2022, and then I'm sure he'll go into swimming retirement. Oh, of course. You can find all the images and videos we talked about in this episode on our website at middleofeverywherepod.org or on Instagram and Facebook at middleofeverywherepod and Twitter at rural underscore stories. If you want to be even more involved in the conversation, sign up for our newsletter so you'll always be the first to know about new episodes and interesting things going on at WKMS and in our region. This episode of Middle of Everywhere was produced by me, Ariel Avery, with the editorial help of my co-host, Austin Carter. Our editor is Naomi Starobin. Our theme music was composed and recorded by Time on the String Sound Studio in Paducah, Kentucky. Other scoring was from APM Music. Marketing and sponsorship support comes from Dixie Lynn. Thank you to our intern, Annie Davis. Middle of Everywhere is a production of WKMS and PRX. This program was made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private organization funded by the American people.
PRX.